0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to greet all of you today. Good morning, folks across the street at the video venue. And all you folks joining us online, wherever you might be, good morning to you as well. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation and find chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning as we begin a brand new sermon series called Dear Church. And the tagline for the series is Seven Letters to Seven Churches. Let me... Just talk to you about that a minute while you're turning there. The study of the book of Revelation, and honestly, any part of the book of Revelation, has always been a great interest to many people, and not just people who are believers. It's always been of great interest, even to people who aren't believers, because the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. I mean, the very word Revelation in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word apokalypsis. We get the word apocalypse from that. From that, and literally translated it means uncovering or revealing and so in other words the book of revelation uncovers or reveals for us the future and it does so in a fascinating way using all different kinds of language some language is literal some is symbolic some is figurative and honestly it's such a unique book that it leaves a lot of people with a sense of anxiety even when it comes to reading it like it's a book that can't be understood, that it's more of a mystery than anything else. And that's really a shame because I don't believe the book of Revelation was given to us by God to be a mystery to us. I believe the book of Revelation was given to us by God to be a blessing. And I believe that for two reasons. The first reason is because that's literally what the book of Revelation says about itself. You got your Bibles open there to Revelation 2? If you look at your Bible in front of you, like I've got mine in front of me, I've got chapter 2 on the right side, and on the left side, I've got chapter 1. And just look at the first three verses of Revelation chapter 1 with me for a moment. This is what it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 3. It says, blessed, everyone say blessed. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed, everyone say blessed. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. I just don't believe that God would give us a book that offer that kind of benefit to us, that kind of blessing to us, and then make it a mystery that can't be understood. Now, the second reason why I believe it's a blessing is because it reveals, remember, the very word means uncover or reveal. It reveals to us that in the end, righteousness wins. We look forward to that day, don't we? Everyone say amen. amen. When we look around us in the world today, when it seems so often that evil wins... We look forward to the day when God makes all things new and righteousness wins, good prevails, God triumphs, and it's you and me, the people of God, who are the great beneficiaries of that. So I really believe that the book of Revelation, while some see it as a mystery that's too difficult to understand, I really believe that it should be an important part of our lives as believers. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend seven weeks going verse by verse through one of my favorite parts of the book of Revelation. That's Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we're going to see seven letters that are written to seven different churches. Now, here's my dilemma. I could spend an entire weekend just on an introduction to this study, but I don't have the time to do that. We're going to be involved in this for seven weeks, and then the following weekend is going to be Easter weekend, which will be a great celebration. So let me just be real brief In my introduction, in fact, this is the only thing I'm going to say. I want you to understand two words when it comes to this study, these seven letters written to these seven churches, and the two words are historical and perennial. You should write that down in your notes. I want you to understand the words historical and perennial. Now, I say I want you to understand the word historical because these are seven letters written to seven literal historical churches, Real churches, real churches with real issues. They are historical in nature. That's the first thing we need to understand about them. These are seven churches located in what was then called Asia Minor. Now, I want you to understand the word perennial because beyond the historical context of each of these letters, these churches in many ways represent churches throughout the ages because they deal with the same kinds of issues that churches have continued to deal with throughout the ages. Or in other words, they deal with issues that are perennial in nature. The word perennial, by definition, means perpetual or continuing or recurrent. I'm sure that many of you have perennials planted at your house, which means that they bloom every year. They come back every year, right? And so there's this repeatable Nature here, and so that's why I want you to understand these two words. These are seven literal historical churches, but the issues that we're going to discover in each of these churches are perennial in nature, in that they show themselves and have shown themselves in churches throughout the ages. All right, having said that, I want you, if you've got your Bibles open with me to Revelation chapter 2, wherever you are, stand with me here across the street, wherever you are, stand with me in reverence and respect for God's word and follow along. As I read the contents of this first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, it's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, begins like this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right. Now, I apologize, but I want you to pause there for a moment and look up here. Uh, some people read that uh, ver- first verse and they take it to mean that, that there's an angel assigned to this church or that perhaps there are angels that are assigned to every church, literal angels. I really don't believe that to be the case. I don't believe that to be the case primarily because there's no real proof of that anywhere else in the Scriptures. There's no no defense of that idea or that thought anywhere else in the Scriptures. The word that is used here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 for angels is the word ongelos, and it can also be translated messenger or envoy or leader, and that's really more, in my belief, the nature of what's behind verse 1. Having said that, to the angel, the angelos, the messenger, the envoy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those ...who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which, which is in, excuse me, the paradise of God. All right, that's it. May God add his blessing to the reading. You can be seated today. Let me spend <clears throat> just a couple of minutes talking to you about some background. First, on the city of Ephesus, and second, on the church in Ephesus, The city was a spectacular place. I'm actually going to be there in just a few weeks. I'm going to be there as I lead a trip from Mount Pleasant. There's about 33 of us going on a trip to Greece and Turkey, and we're going to actually visit the ruins of the city of Ephesus. I'm looking forward to that. It's a very strong, strong city. In ancient days, with a population in New Testament times that's estimated to be somewhere between 250 and 500,000. It was a busy city because it was a port city located right on the banks of the Mediterranean with three major trade routes that passed through the city. So there was a lot of activity there. It was a strong economy there in the city of Ephesus. It had many wealthy families. But like a lot of large cities, it had a dark side. How many of you know that large cities usually have a dark side? And that was true of the city of Ephesus primarily for two reasons. The first one was because it was a port city, because it was located right on the banks of the Mediterranean. It was a convenient location for criminals which made it a place of crime and corruption. But even more than that, the second reason is because the real fame of the city of Ephesus is that it was the center of worship for the goddess Artemis or Diana. Those are one and the same. If you read them, Artemis was the Greek name of the goddess. Diana was the Roman name of the goddess. And the crown jewel, because it was the center of worship for this goddess, the crown jewel of the city was the temple of Artemis or Diana, which was listed actually as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'll put a list of those wonders up on the screen so you can see them. The Great Pyramid at Giza in Egypt, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia in Greece, the Temple of of Artemis or Diana there in Ephesus, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the lighthouse of Alexandria in Egypt. So it was a spectacular place. The temple was a spectacular place. We'll put a rendering up on the screen of what it might have looked like in ancient days. It was 425 feet long, 260 feet wide, and it had 130 columns that were 60 feet high, each of them. And this temple was the center of a tremendous amount of activity in the city of Ephesus. Not just the worship of this false goddess, but all kinds of activities. In fact, John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, writes, The temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, and frenzied hysterical worshipers. And the worship was beyond anything that you and I could even imagine. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but the kind of worship that happened in the temple uh, involved the self, for example, the sexual self-mutilation of men who had become eunuchs for the purpose of serving this goddess, Artemis or Diana, but also involved thousands of priestesses who were nothing more than glorified prostitutes who believed that in the activity of sexual orgies you could actually lift the worshiper up into the actual presence of the goddess a man named Heraclitus, who was a greek philosopher and also a resident of the city of ephesus said on one occasion the morals of the temple were even worse than the morals of animals for even dogs do not mutilate each other On another occasion, he said, the people there, he's talking about the people in the temple, he said, the people there were fit only to be drowned. These are the words of a man who lived in the city of Ephesus. Heraclitus, this same man, was known as the weeping philosopher because once he declared that no one could live in the city of Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. This was the truth or the reality of this city. That gives you a little bit of a picture of the dark side of the city. And in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this sin, in the midst of this indulgence, in the midst of this immorality, there was a group of believers together in the darkness. There was a church, and it was to this church that Jesus addressed this letter in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's talk about them as we talk about the Church, and I want you to pay attention to what i 'm about to say because this is significant. There may not be another church in history i 'm talking about every church in all of history. there may not be another church in history with as rich a heritage as the church in Ephesus. You get a glimpse of that, and you should do this at some sometime, uh, sometime later today. you get a glimpse of that if you were to go in your Bibles, make a note of this, and you would go to Acts chapter eighteen verse 18, and you would read from Acts chapter 18, verse 18, all the way through the end of Acts chapter 19, because there you see the beginning of the church in Ephesus. The gospel came into the city of Ephesus primarily through the efforts of the apostle Paul, and a great ministry couple that were his companions named Aquila and Priscilla. Does anybody ever remember hearing of Aquila and Priscilla? And then later also through a man named Apollos who has a very interesting story that you can read about in Acts chapter 19. And Paul's time in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 tells us that he spent three years. That's how significant a ministry this was. He spent three years in the city of Ephesus. Acts chapter 20 and verse 31 tells us that in his time there in Ephesus, could best be described by the word fruitful. It was a very fruitful ministry. In fact, I'm going to hold my place in Revelation 2 and turn to Acts chapter 19 and just give you a little bit of a glimpse of the kind of dramatic events that happened in the city of Ephesus that were the foundation for the founding, the beginning of this church. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11 and 12 says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. I mean, how spectacular is that, honestly, that somebody, a mere man, could just possess a handkerchief or just touch or hold in his hands an apron, and that handkerchief or apron could be distributed to people who had all kinds of devastating illnesses or had suffered from demonic possession, and they could be set free from all of it all of it. That's the kind of dramatic thing that happened in Ephesus. So when you're up late at night and you're watching some televangelist on your television show who tells you, if you send me a donation, I'll send you this handkerchief that I've held and it will bring healing to your life. That's where that idea comes from. But he ain't no Apostle Paul, just remember that. No matter how big the donation, he's no Apostle Paul. Another Uh, example of the kind of dramatic event that happened in Ephesus is there was such widespread conversion in Ephesus that incredible things happened. I'm back in chapter 19 and I'm going to scroll down to verse 19 this time. It says a number who had practiced sorcery, which was a big deal in the city. I mean, the city was a dark place. It was filled with all kinds of immorality and all kinds of dark practices, mysterious dark practices. Things like this captivated and captured the people. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I want you to just think for a minute. That was, a massive amount of money in that day and age if we were to try to calculate that amount of money in today's currency we would be talking about a multi-million dollar bonfire just to give you an idea drachma was equal to a day's wage for a laborer in the city of Ephesus and the scrolls that they burned were calculated to be worth 50,000 drachmas just think about that in today's currency a day's wage and how much that would be But that was the power that was happening, the dramatic power of God that was on display in the city of Ephesus. There's another place that begins in verse 23 and goes down to the end of the chapter. We don't have time to read that place, but there was a man, a silversmith in the city of Ephesus named Demetrius, and there, one of the great trades of the city, because the center of the worship for the false goddess of Artemis or Diana was there, one of the great trades was the crafting of idols in the city, and so Demetrius came together one day, and he basically got his union buddies, that's the way we would understand it, his union buddies together, listen we got a big problem this paul is creating a big problem for us he's leading people away from the worship of this fall of the goddess of diana or artemis he's telling people there's only one true god and that's taking money out of our pockets and it created a big stir in the city paul had been able to penetrate the culture that powerfully with the message of the gospel but here's the deal By the time we open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 and we read verses 1 through 7, the letter to the church in Ephesus, there's been a little more than 40 years have gone by since all of this that we read about in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. The apostle Paul is gone and all of those first generation believers who were converted in his ministry, who saw all of these things we just talked about firsthand, they're gone as well. And things had changed, which is why... We have this letter here in Revelation chapter 2, so we need to talk about the letter and understand it on a deeper level. If you're taking notes right down next to number 1, the first thing we need to understand, and that's the commendation. This outline is not original with me. When you study this, you find pretty much a similar outline to The way these letters are broken down all throughout a variety of different books and commentaries. Let's talk about the commendation. It's in the first three verses back in Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here's the beginning of the commendation. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary we would add verse 6 as a part of the commendation as well we'll talk about that in a minute I think you can really uh, honestly uh, break down the commendation uh, into three words we'll talk about those in a minute but first of all I want to talk to you about this we're talking about Jesus here It's Jesus who holds those seven stars in his right hand. It's Jesus who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's not speculation. That's literally what chapter 1 and verse 20 says. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, the angelos, the leaders of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches That's who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus. He's a part of this. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, just as he writes to all the other churches that we're going to look at, he knows, he knows exactly what's going on in the church here in Ephesus. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the reality of all of these churches And the reason why I want to point that out is because when you look at chapter 2 and verse 2, Jesus begins the words of his commendation by saying I know. And he uses a very specific word there in the original language of the New Testament for know. It's the word Edo. And it's a reference to having complete and full knowledge. It's not progressive knowledge. It's not the idea of I've come to know or I'm coming to know. That's a completely different word in the original language of the Bible. That's the word Gnosko. Jesus is writing this letter from a place of complete and absolute authority because he knows everything there is to know about this church in Ephesus, just like he knows everything there is to know about every church in history, just like he knows everything there is to know about this church right here, Mount Pleasant Christian Church. I find great comfort in that. I suppose somebody could find anxiety in that if they were trying to hide something, but I find comfort in knowing that Jesus knows, that he knows everything about this church everything about the church. And what Jesus knows specifically about the church in Ephesus is that there are some good things in the church. And as I told you, those good things can be summarized by three words. The first word is activity. Activity. Ephesus was a church full of energy. Jesus said, I know your deeds. He said, I know your hard work and your perseverance. If you were to bring a church consultant into the church at Ephesus and they did a survey to try to find out where they landed on the scale of involvement, ministry involvement and activity, they would score high because everybody was engaged in ministry. The second word that describes this church and the commendation of this church is the word discernment. Because Jesus goes on to say in the latter part of verse 2, he says, I know that you, again, that's that definite knowledge. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now, we can't minimize the importance of this statement. This was a church that was full of conviction. This was a church that was full of depth. This was a church that was full of courage. This was a church that was full of discernment. We see that there in the latter part of verse 2 and again down in verse 6, which we'll look at in a minute. This was a church where they would not tolerate sin. They wouldn't tolerate false teachers. They wouldn't tolerate spiritual impostors. Look down at verse 6. This is another part of the commendation after Jesus confronts them about the problem that they have. He goes on to say, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let's talk about that for just a minute. I don't think there's any way for us to know for sure with absolute certainty who the Nicolaitans are, but let me give you one pretty common belief. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of Acts, and if you're not, that's okay. You might be a new believer and you're just starting to learn. That's okay. We all start somewhere. But if you're familiar with the book of Acts, which is the history book of the New Testament and tells us how the church began and how it spread... You know that the church in Jerusalem, after it began, we see this in Acts chapter 6, began to have a problem in that not everybody in the church was being served in the same way. Some people were being neglected, in other words. That's the short story. And so they complained about that. And the apostles who were there thought to themselves, well, we can't serve the people. We can't wait on tables. We've got the supreme responsibility of teaching the word of God, of being spiritual leaders in the church. And so what they decided to do was to select seven men seven men who met certain qualifications. One of them was that they were filled with the Spirit and to ordain them in uh, a way to take care of the physical needs of the people. And one of those seven men was a man named Nicholas. And a wide belief, a common belief, is that Nicholas later in his life became a false believer and a heretic, but he still was able to retain influence among the churches because of his original credentials being one of those original seven who were set apart by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. And the belief is he became involved in all kinds of immorality and all kinds of indulgence and ended up leading believers astray. The bottom line is the Nicolaitans were bad, bad news. They had abandoned themselves to every single kind of self-indulgence imaginable, and then they tried to justify their self-indulgence with a perverted message of grace And all we really need to know about how bad the Nicolaitans were is we need to look back there at verse 6 and notice that Jesus says these words. He says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which, note this, I also hate. Jesus says, I hate them. And not them. He said, I hate what they do. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't you think that would get your attention if Jesus, the friend of sinners, if Jesus, the very embodiment of the grace of God, every good thing about God, looked at you and said, I hate what you're doing? That's how bad they were. That's how significant they were. But the leadership in the church in Ephesus was on this man they were on this because they were marked with discernment and they could sniff out false teachers and false believers and they had great courage because they wouldn't tolerate wicked or sinful men and they wouldn't tolerate any kind of a false teaching in their church and no doubt that was a part of their heritage again if you're familiar with the book of acts you know that in acts chapter 20 there's a there's a a passage there that talks about the very last time paul saw the elders or the leaders of the church in Ephesus and it was a very emotional moment. They hugged each other and they wept together because they knew that they would never see each other again and Paul in that meeting told them things like, I know that after I'm gone, savage wolves are going to come in and, and, and they're not going to spare the flock. He was talking about false teachers. They're going to come in and they're going to try to distort the truth and they're going to try to take the disciples in a different direction. He says to the elders, so you be on your guard and you don't let that happen and that's something I think they held on to over the years they took their leadership role seriously. They never let their guard down, something that we need to pay attention to when it comes to leadership in the local church because one thing that is often lacking is the, in the modern day church that values, just like the rest of the culture, values tolerance and acceptance over spiritual character and spiritual truth, we need to make sure that we have the same kind of credibility that the Ephesian elders did, the same kind of courage, same kind of discernment, the same kind of hold on doctrinal purity and truth. You know, the Bible says, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, this comes from the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, a modern English paraphrase of the Bible. And actually, it's just the second part of the verse. It says this. It says, when sin and grace meet, grace always wins hands down. Isn't that a great thing? Somebody say amen to that, so I know you're paying attention. When sin... That's you and me because we're all sinners. None of us are perfect. When sin and grace meet, grace is the embodiment of every good thing of God, the love, the, gra- the mercy, the f- compassion, the forgiveness of God. He says, when sin and grace meet, grace always wins hands down. We're so thankful for that. But listen, grace is never a license for sin. Never. Never. And we need to understand that. The elders, the leaders in the church in Ephesus understood that. The third word that describes the commendation is the word perseverance. Verse 3 says about this church, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. In other words, Jesus said your tenacity is unbelievable. So this is what Jesus knows about this church. He, He knows that they're pouring themselves in ministry. He knows that they have courage and discernment and that they hold on to doctrinal truth and they protect it that they're not seduced by error. He knows they're tough and they're committed and they have perseverance. He knows that when other people give up in ministry, they press on. Sounds like a great church, doesn't it? Until you get to verse 4. And in verse 4, Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Right down next to number 2, the words, the concern. He says, Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. I hope we understand, again, the seriousness of this. You know, over the years, I was thinking about that this week, over the years when I read that passage, over the years, in every church that I've served, including this church, I will run across somebody, I'll come in contact with somebody who'll say to me, in maybe not these exact words, but in so many words, they'll say, Pastor, I've got something against your church. And sometimes what they have against my church is legitimate. You know, maybe the church failed them somehow. Maybe the church let them slip through the cracks, didn't minister to them, didn't reach out when they needed to, didn't provide what they needed to provide in the moment. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. Oftentimes it's not legitimate, and it comes from some place of dysfunction in their life. But you know what is of greater concern to me is if Jesus ever said, Pastor, I've got something against your church. Can you imagine? And that's exactly what Jesus says here to the church in Ephesus. He said, I've got something against you. And what he had against them was that they had forsaken their first love. There'd been a time in their history as a church when they were marked by love, and we can understand that by love on every level. They were marked by love for God. They were marked by love for Jesus. They were marked by love for one another. They were marked by love for the lost. Every kind of love. But their passion and their love had dimmed; They'd lost those things. My personal belief is that 40 years ago, that that's what the church had when it was founded. But over the course of time, that first generation of believers who are now gone had given way to a new group of believers who maintained a commitment to service, who maintained a commitment to truth, who maintained a commitment to... Uh, to hanging in there no matter what but they had lost their love and that's a problem because of the supremacy of love Because of the supremacy of love, we need to understand that nothing in our lives as believers is more important than our love for God, than our love for Christ. Everything that we do as believers, everything that we do as a church needs to flow from the foundation of our love for our Lord. We talked about that last week in the message when Jesus said in answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Remember that? He said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing's more important than love. We can be busy in ministry. The Ephesians were busy in ministry. We can be... We can have discernment and doctrinal purity. The Ephesians had those things. We can have an attitude that says, no matter what happens, I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to get up. The Ephesians had that attitude, but if it's not motivated by a deep love and a passionate love for our Lord, then it's empty. Everything needs to flow from love. That's the supremacy of love. We need to understand that as believers. That's why Paul, when he wrote the definitive passage on love in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, began that passage with these words, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love I am nothing if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love I gain nothing everyone say nothing 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 everything flows from our love that's how important it is this is not what God wants He doesn't want us to be involved in loveless service and to protect truth from a loveless heart and to persevere with a loveless perspective of not ever giving up. Let me illustrate it like this. And ladies, I'll just pause for a moment and talk to you. What do you think it would be like for you ladies if you went home today You went through the business of the rest of the day, and tonight, right before you went to bed, your husband looked at you, I mean, just looked at you right in your face, just eye to eye, and he said, I need to tell you something, I don't love you anymore. He said, it didn't happen all at once, but I felt it coming on over the years, you know? It's just not what it used to be. I don't love you anymore. But then before you could even say something, he would quickly hurry uh, and follow up that statement by saying, but I want you to know that nothing's going to change. I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to go to work every day. I'm still going to do everything I can to provide for you and our family. I'm still going to support you in every way possible. I'm still going to be the father to our children. I'm still going to sleep with you. I'm still going to expect that you will reciprocate and we'll have a physical relationship. But at the end of the day, you just need to know, I just want to operate from a perspective of honesty. I don't love you. Now, let me ask you, ladies, would that be enough for you? And you know what? Sadly, there might be some of you who are living in that reality right now. Is it enough for you? What if I flipped the coin and I said the same thing to you men? I just reversed everything that I just said. And tonight, before you went to bed, your wife looked at you and she said, I don't love you anymore. But nothing's going to change. That wouldn't be enough for any of us. And it's certainly not enough for Jesus. And so he said, I got this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. And this is what can happen in our lives, and this is what can happen in our church. We can say, we can say, whether we recognize it or not, whether we know we're saying it or not, we can say, Lord, I just don't love you like I once did, but I'm still going to show up, and I'm still going to serve, and I'm still going to sing, and I'm still going to give, and I'm still going to believe and protect the truth, but the truth is, I just don't really love you that much anymore. Right down next to number three, the words of the counsel. Because as soon as Jesus shares the concern, he follows it up with his counsel, this word of counsel. Verse 5 says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, everybody look up here. I want you to understand three words. Jesus basically said, you need to do three things. And those three things are this. Number one, you need to remember. Number two, you need to repent. And number three, you need to return. Number one, he says you need to remember. And here's the deal, and I'm sure that you would agree with me. About this, So often the problems that we have in our relationships, and now we're talking about our relationship with Christ, you know, and the church is each one of us individually, right? Everyone say right. The church is not a building. The church is each one of us as believers individually, and the problem and the context we're talking about now is the relationship we have as Christ, and it can be individually or collectively. The problem that we have sometimes in our relationships is we forget what things were like in the beginning, and I know that there are times when believers forget what Jesus rescued them And I know that sometimes we forget what our life would have been like without Him because of what it was like without Him, and we forget how... The passion that we, how deep the passion was we felt for him and the love that we had for him when he saved us and he changed our lives, it happens in our relationship with Christ just like it happens in other relationships sometimes. And what we need to do in those moments is remember, we need to remember, all of us would do well to spend some time in this weekend pausing to remember that moment of salvation, the conversion experience and how transforming the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus was. And then he said, you need to repent. You need to repent. And repentance is a word we talk about with regard to sin because it's a sin to lose your first love for Jesus. We need to understand it that way. We need to repent. The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoeo, and it means to literally to change one's mind. We've always understood that there was a practical application of that, to change your mind which results in the change of your life, a change of your direction. That's why we often use the word turn to describe repentance because to repent means to turn from sin and to turn to God. That's a very simple definition, but it's accurate. We need to repent. There are times we need to get down on our knees and we need to ask God for forgiveness for the things that we've done in our life. And I'm going to say it again. Losing our first love, letting our guard down to the point where we lose our first love for Christ is a sin and it requires repentance. And then the third thing we need to do is return. Now, Jesus actually uses the words remember and repent in the verse there, verse 5. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Then he says, repent. And notice that he says this. He says, and do the things you did at first. And that's when I get the word return. And do the things you did at first. I'm telling you, I think that's so powerful. I think that's so powerful because the simple instruction there is that if you can look at your life and in a moment of great, courageous honesty, you can say that my love is not the same as it was in the beginning, then one of the best things you can do is go back and do the things that you did in the beginning. That's one of the best ways to recapture that love. So you came a Christian and you, you were so thankful and you were so moved by God's grace in your life. And you responded by, by, by being a fervent worshiper. You responded by being a, a student of God's word. You couldn't get enough of it. You responded by serving him in a variety of different ways. But if you look at your life now and you say, you know, that was in the past. I'm not doing any of those things. Then the instruction of Jesus is to return and to start doing those things again. And let me tell you, by the way, that applies to any relationship, any relationship. If if it's not the same as it was, then maybe what you need to do is go back and start doing the things that you did before. I think I told you the story one time about the man in one of my churches before I came here who came to me one day, heartbroken, said, Pastor, my marriage is over. And it was shocking to me because from all out word appearances, They had a perfect marriage, and he began to talk about how he and his wife really hadn't had any love for one another, or felt any love, or expressed any love for one another for a long time, and they were just like strangers living in the same house, no intimacy, no connection, no passion, nothing, and I, I said, well, I was shocked, and I said, well, let's talk about this. I said, tell me, you know, how long have you been together? How, when did you meet? And he started to tell me about their early life. And in the course of that, he said, one of the things that we used to really enjoy doing when we first married is we went out to eat. And we loved doing that. It was a great source of, of connection and, and intimacy for us. We would go to all kinds of different restaurants, eat all kinds of different food, and we would talk about the experience and laugh. And that would lead to talking about other things in our lives. And we laugh and we really connected. And, that, and he said, but we haven't done that for years. And I said, well, do me a favor. I said, when you go home tonight, take your wife out to dinner. He said, Pastor, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And he said that because he said, our marriage is so far gone that one one night out to dinner is not going to make a difference. And so I understood where he's coming from. But I said, what do you got to lose? And so he went home and he took his wife out to dinner. Now, listen to me. He was in one of my other churches. I've been the pastor here for 14 years. I've lost track of him. But here's what I can tell you. They're still married today. Now, sometimes in life, it's just that simple. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, you need to remember, you need to repent. He says, you need to return. You need to go back and do the things that you did in the beginning. I've met people in every church I've ever served who who, who are, are, are actively involved in the life of the church. I mean, they're worshiping, they're serving, they're growing, they're studying, they're in a small group, they're in Bible studies. And, and over the course of time, they just drift away from all those things. And as they drift away from all those things, their involvement in the church and their support of the church and their participation in the church, those drift away too. And then they wake up one day and they think, you know what? My spiritual life is not right. I think the church is the problem. I think I need a new church. The church is not meeting my needs anymore, or or, or I'm concerned about the direction the church. They give some kind of spiritual sounding uh, uh, phrase to their dilemma to make it sound like, you know, there's some depth there. And the problem is not the church. The problem is the person looking back at them when they look in the mirror every morning. Because they're not doing the same, same things that they did in the beginning. You know, I, I used to be in, in, in a Bible study, but I had to take a break. I used to be in a small group, but I needed to take a break. I used to serve in this ministry, but I needed to take a break. And the problem is that the break just went on forever. I'm telling you, the problem's not the church. problem's you. Remember, repent, and return and Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, if you don't do this, listen, he said, if you don't do these things, I'm coming for you, but it's not a good thing. We look forward to the second coming of Christ, amen? We look forward to that day when he's going to come finally and make all things new. We look forward to that, but that's not what we're talking about here. He says, I'm going to come for you, and I'm going to remove your lampstand. How do we understand that? We understand it like this. He said, I'm coming for you, and it's going to be over for you. I'm, your light's going to go out. Your fire is going to be extinguished. And you ask the question, did that happen? And that's absolutely what happened at the church in Ephesus. That's what happened. There's no church there today. There's nothing but a memory of a church. And it's happened in other churches throughout generations who have let their guard down and lost their first love. Because remember the illustration we used earlier when I said, ladies, would that be enough for you? Men, would that be enough for you? It's not enough for Jesus to just go through the motions without a deep and a passionate love for him. And then finally, number four, write down these words. The conclusion, verse seven says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And, Brian, you can come, and we'll bring this to a close. What we see here is an invitation and a promise. The invitation is to listen. That's what, that's what the words, he who has an ear to hear, means. It means listen. It's God's way of saying, you better listen to what I'm about to say. And we see that in all these letters. And then there's a promise here. He says, to him who overcomes. And we see that in all these letters as well. And here's the promise In this letter, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I got a special promise. And in this case, it's to eat from the tree of life. And so we see see a, a kind of a full circle thing here. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, because the very first reference to the tree of life in our Bibles is found all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, when it stood in the Garden of Eden. But if you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world, that tree was lost because of man's sin. Lost, but not gone forever, because that tree, that heavenly tree, that tree of life, shows up again, this time in Revelation chapter 22. And it is forever a symbol of eternal life. And so Jesus says, I want you to pay attention. You need to listen to me. You need to not be distracted listen to me now. If you overcome, this is the, this is the promise, eternal life. I'm for eternal life today. How about you? Somebody say amen. We're for, we're for eternal life today. And that is the promise. That is the promise.